is Susanna Brisk and welcome to the Sexual Intuitive Podcast. You'll be glad you came. I am here with somebody so special that I can barely contain myself today. That person is someone I would describe as a sex ed superstar. She's an educator. She's a pleasure toy reviewer. She's a media personality. She's a writer. She was the Kinkley Blogger of the Year. And she has the very, very popular American Sex Podcast on iTunes, as well as being the host of Sex with Sunny Megatron on Showtime. Holy shit. Everybody, I have Sunny Megatron with me today. Holy shit. You make me sound so important. I'm so flattered. <laughs> you are important. Well, you know, I'll, 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 I'll go along with that. Okay. Yeah. Listen, even if I don't you, feel like it sometimes I'll go along with it. Right. You are amazing. First of all, I brought you my book and you edited my book, which was not in the bio I described, but my book, how to get laid using your intuition was something that you thought would be too woo woo for you. Yeah. Because you describe yourself as woo impaired. I am very woo impaired, even though there is a part, like I do believe in some of the, you know, woo, whether it's psychic phenomenon or intuition. It's not like I don't believe in any of that, but I'm also very, at the same time, very logical. My explanation for anything woo is, yeah, it might be happening, but you know, there's some kind of advanced quantum physics we don't know that will explain all of this. It's yes. not really woo. I think woo really isn't woo at its core, if we were smart enough to figure it out. Well, that's exactly how I feel about it, which is why we were able to collab mm-hmm. and make something that even people who are incredibly science-based and very logical could kind of walk out to the end of the bridge and jump with us because we made it understandable for those people. Yeah. Yeah. We kind of, I don't know, we're, we're liaisons, you know, translating the woo language for the woo impaired language. So anyone in between or at one end of the spectrum or the other could understand it. I think we did a really good job. I would agree with that. Tell me about, Sonny, we're going to go deep today. Ooh, yay. We're going to go deep because, you know, I was on your podcast and we went deep into my Russian background, which is something that I didn't think I would be talking about. So let's go deep. Let's cast your mind back to your earliest erotic memory. Mm -hmm. What was it? Wow. Okay. So my earliest erotic memories, and it's funny because I spent many years confused about these early erotic memories and now my life has come full circle and I'm at the point where I'm like, oh, I totally get why those are my fantasies. So I I was probably mm, three or four years old when I started, you know, having the thoughts and exploring myself. And to me, sex was very... God, it's hard to explain. I would I would conjure up these images of kind of sex parties where people were non-monogamous, people had sex with various people. It was a group sort of scenario. Uh-huh. But it wasn't necessarily like, you know, your picture in your mind kind of like a bow chicka wow wow, like really erotic and hot. It was more kind of like if you were to take 
orgy and mix it with, let's go into a lab and experiment with things and touch this and see what happens and what happens when I do that. And it was kind of very like cerebral and logical, like, I'm going to see what I can make your body do. What happens when I do that? But it was like mixed with orgy. So those are my earliest erotic fantasies and they kind of stuck with me. And I thought I was a weirdo until... I hit the age of what, about 35, and I started discovering or exploring my hidden kinks. And then I found myself at orgies, you know, using different devices on people, going, Well, let's see what happens if I turn it up like this. (laughs) And I'm like, Oh my God, I'm my four year old self. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's not what you expect when you go to your first orgies or sex parties that you're going to be like, I just got in touch with my inner four-year-old. Exactly. exactly. But that's what I'm always trying to explain to people, that these urges are so primal and so unique to you and so something that you're born with, that a lot of the time, the places that you reach are places that are actually non-sexual. They just happen to be reached in kinky or sexual ways. Yeah, we just recently had uh, Midori, who is a kink educator on our podcast, and that's very much her philosophy: is in order to be a good, you know, kinkster or even like sexual role player, if you're more vanilla, you need to tap into the creativity of your inner eight-year-old, and that's really the key. Yeah, yeah, I was a very horny eight-year-old. Really? Myself. Yeah, I definitely came into my, um, you know, excitement at anything even remotely sexual early. Wow. Yeah, I, I, I would say about, I don't know, probably 10 years old for me. Mm-hmm. I... You know, I guess I always had the same sort of similar, you know, fantasies. But around 10 years old, I started playing Barbies. No, actually, I started playing Barbies earlier. At 10 years old, I started getting sick of my Barbies, like between 10 and 12. So yeah. I'm like, I'm going to cut their hair and make them punk rock. And like, I was like, I don't really care, you know. And so then at that point, my best friend and I, who we never did anything, you know, experimented with each other in that way. But we had 13 Barbies and one Ken. And they had sexual scenarios where... It's like, this was at the time, remember the, the made-for-TV movie The Day After about nuclear war in the 80s? I, I do vaguely remember that, mm-hmm. yes. So it was around this time and it was like the nuclear bomb went off and for some reason the 13 Barbies and one Ken were like in a bunker or in some situation where they were the only ones in the world that survived and they would have to repopulate the earth. And there were there was like one leader Barbie who was like a... I didn't know anything about S&M at the time, but she was a dominant lesbian Barbie who was a sadist. And she had like another sidekick who was also kind of her co-top. And what they did was they topped the rest of the Barbies and the Ken. They kept Ken chained to a bed. And of course, in you know their clothes melted off in the explosion, or sometimes it was a shipwreck where they lost all their clothes in the ocean and they, you know, they were on an island. It was always some sort of like doomsday scenario. And they would tie Ken down and fuck him and be like, you're going to impregnate me because we have to repopulate the world. And then they would make the submissive Barbies fuck him and they'd be like, no, we don't want to fuck We like, fuck him. And then we'd be like, okay, Barbie, eat my pussy. And they were doing lesbians. I mean, and I was like, for years, I was like, what the hell is wrong with me? And now I'm like, oh, I totally understand. Nothing was wrong with me. That was me. That's total like situational BDSM. Totally. I I had no idea BDSM even existed at this point in my life. So what made you have like an awakening when you were 35 where suddenly all the, the Barbie play? By the way, why isn't there a sadist Barbie? 
Oh, there is. She's Say not this packaged that way. She's just not packaged that way. But wouldn't that be great? Well, you'd have to license to Mattel, but yeah. I think that's what, maybe we need to do a line of toys to educate oh, children. Awesome. Oh, maybe not. We're yeah. In, right now we're in, we're in other territorial. <laughs> but what happened? See, that's the other thing about you and I that we have in common in terms of the, the sexy sex people is that we have children. Yeah. And I noticed that a lot of the other sex educators don't tend to have children. And so I want to know about how that has kind of impacted your sex life. But first, I want to know about the 35-year-old you and where you were and how far away you were from that four-year-old self and that 10-year-old self. Well, I think... How you reconnected with that. Yeah, I think... Different things that happened to me as I was growing up. One, you know, I ha- there was sexual abuse in my childhood. So that really put it in my head, like, when I was developing sexually in my teens, like, oh, I wow. wasn't, quote, normal. Oh. And whatever uh, desires that I had, which were kinky and, quote, weird, because I didn't know that this was perfectly normal at the time, oh. I thought, well, I must be fucked up because I was abused. Be- you know, it must have oh. made me some kind of a pervert or abnormal. So I tried to suppress it. Oh. And I also grew up in an environment, you know, talk about the, you know, toxic masculinity and all the men in my life were super abusive. And my mom had the abusive boyfriends. I didn't have a healthy view of what a healthy relationship was or what healthy men were. So when I started dating, I just, you know, my first uh, partner, I hadn't been married except for Ken, which is my third long-term relationship. First one, we were together 11 years. We had a child, you know, everything but the marriage papers. And he was a good guy. Like he wasn't abusive. He was just kind of dumb, like didn't like to go to work, would party too much. Like he was an eternal kid sort of. And he was very like toxic masculinity, toxic monogamy, you know, kind of jealous. And it just wasn't my vibe. And I had always as a kid kind of leaned towards open relationships and that sort of thing. But I didn't even know that was a possibility. So then fast forward to when I turned 30, we break up. I immediately get into an incredibly abusive relationship for eight years. And, you know, instead of just being like with a good guy who was kind of dumb, I was with Satan himself, you know. And so that repressed me sexually. It repressed me emotionally. I had a lot of baggage that I had to dig out of. And when I was about 35, we broke up. I was single for the first time in my life for a number of years. And I'm like, you know, it dawned on me right about that time, like, wait a minute, I don't have all these kinky thoughts that I can't suppress no matter how hard I try because I was abused. I'm actually suppressing them because I was abused. And I thought back to like, my thoughts of, you know, my first sexual thoughts of like the orgy kind of vibe. And I'm like, that was, you know, when I was a clean slate, nothing had happened to me at that point. And I'm like, I've always been like this. Like, and it just dawned on me like, wait, that's normal. And it isn't the abuse that made me like this. It's the abuse that made me suppress it. And it was just like a huge light bulb moment. And that's when I was like, hey, I got the internet. There's kinky people on there. I 
uh, I was like, I want to have a threesome. I want to get kinky. I want to do all the things. I went on Craigslist. I did not end up in 14 separate garbage bags. Thank God. Um, and then one of one of, yeah, one of the guys I met on, on uh, Craigslist was like, hey, there's this kinky website called FetLife. You should, it's a lot safer than Craigslist. And, you know, and kind of the rest is history. I met Ken, my current husband and co-educator and co-kind of everything-er on Fat Life, and you know, here we are. How many years later? Eleven, twelve years later, and boom! Co everythinger. Yeah, co everythinger. We work together. We everything together. Do you think that a common or shared sexuality or kink can keep a relationship going, mm. especially if the rest of the the connection is not so hot? I would say if the rest of the connection is not so hot, you got other things to work on. And I've seen people um, get into the kink world and they kind of, you know, come in, maybe their relationship isn't the best, but they do have this thing in common, which is kink. And they're very curious and very eager. And they're, they're kids in the candy store when they realize like, oh, there's sex clubs in my city and there's dungeons and there's places I can go. And, be, and they like dive in and they do all the things. And I just, I watch them from afar. Like I give them two years. You know, the, the kink is a commonality they have that's covering up all the bad shit that's happening in their relationship that they're not addressing. And they think the kink is saving it but then they end up crashing and burning. So is it good to have something in common, especially sexually with your partner? Yeah, but it doesn't make up for the rest of the relationship. It's so interesting that you notice that. Mm, I can spot them a mile away. I'm like, yeah. oh, those, those, I see them at every party. They're all excited, but I'm like, they got some other problems they're not addressing. And sure as shit, you know, two, three years later, they're divorcing or they're, you know... A big scene happened, something, not a good, you know, kinky scene, but a scene yeah, in their relationship. Not in the good way. Yeah. Because yeah. they're not good co-everythingers. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and then if you talk to, I don't know, people in the swing community or non-monogamy or whatever it is, kink, and they say, hey, is this a good way to help fix a relationship? No, you need to be on solid ground. And like, just like, is having a baby a good way to fix a relationship? Yeah. No, you're going to be like kind of in the baby honeymoon period for a couple of years because everything's different and you're concentrating on your new kid. But eventually those problems are going to rear up again and they're probably going to be worse because they've gone unaddressed and grown like weeds. Yes. So it's the same thing with getting into kink or, you know, whatever sexual sub-community or alt sex thing. Same thing. Yeah. It's so uh, brilliant what you're saying right now. Uh, What about uh, conflict? Like, do you think that it's better to have a low-conflict relationship or a relationship with passion where people fight a lot? Like, do you know people, for example, who are incredibly kinky and well-matched on that level and have a low-conflict versus a high-conflict relationship? Does that exist? (laughs) Well, you know, I... I am only privy to the relationship that I'm in because I can look at people, even people that I'm very close to and say, you're low conflict, but I'm not with them behind closed doors. And I, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, I can speak from my own experience. My first relationship with the really nice guy that just never grew up, we prided ourselves on the fact that we never argued. 
for 11 years, we never argued. And we thought like, aren't we great? We never argue. No, I was a puss that didn't know how to set boundaries. And so I just kind of, it's like, oh yeah, you went out drinking till four in the morning and that's work again. Okay. Like I just, I kind of let everything go. We just, we didn't communicate well. We weren't good boundary setters. And, you know, in the second relationship doesn't count because it was abusive as hell. So that's, was nothing healthy about that. Um, In the relationship I'm in now, we have conflict, but I think it's not that you have conflicts. It's how you handle the conflict. Do you you get into fights and start throwing things and you're a fucking asshole. You're a bitch. Right, below the belt. Yeah. Exactly. Or do do you let that conflict, yeah, it hurts and it sucks to argue or whatever, but does do having those those conflicts periodically eventually propel you forward? That's that's the key. Do you think that couples who are into BDSM and pardon me for my croaky voice today, um, no the show must go on. Yep. Um, it's not horse from yelling at my partner, so. Okay. Is it horse from moaning in ecstasy? <laughs> it might be. <laughs> That's more of a high moan. Um, but um, a shriek. <laughs> um, but do you think uh, partners who are engaging in different kinds of BDSM activities, whether a one person is usually the dominant, whether one person is usually the submissive, whether they're switches, if they're doing role play, um, just anything kinky, not necessarily one thing. Mm-hmm. Do you think that it is a secret weapon to resolve conflict? Uh, I would say that's situational. So I, I've seen some couples where one is dominant and one is submissive and they carry that out, you know, not just like the scene in the bedroom, but they may do it on a more 24-7 basis or yes. at times outside of the bedroom. And Let's and, just, for, just pause for one second. I want yeah. to define 24-7 for people because we just like, you know, we, I, like I'll say DS, 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 DS really fast, which is dominant submissive in the BDSM acronym. And people will go, oh, wait, 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 wait what do you say? Um, and 24-7 is one of those things too, that if you're... Um, in this field, you're, you're just like, oh, 24-7, you rattle it off as if people know. And then I remind myself that people don't know, perhaps. So 24-7 is when you choose to live that reality all the time. So if one person is a dominant, the other person is submissive, then that extends into your real life. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that can be in um, protocol, which is like um, formalized, say, uh, tasks or uh, ways of speaking or ways of addressing each other. Uh, that can be in, um, uh, help me out here, in uh, just... And even the one person having the pow- power in the relationship to the point right. where you would say to your dominant, um, should I wear this or this? And they would say, uh, wear that and not, it, it, this is difficult to understand outside the context. And again, because you, you know, the difference because you've been in an abusive relationship and mm-hmm. you've been with someone who's controlling. And so it's difficult sometimes to explain to people that it's not that. Right. Um, what it is, is that you've consciously decided to surrender your power to somebody because you believe that they have your best interests at heart. They understand your needs better than you do. And that way of life is relaxing and natural for you. 
Right, right. And and what you just said is actually the key to why this type of relationship may not necessarily be healthy. In a perfect world, if we're doing BDSM right, yes, we communicate and we negotiate and we each set our boundaries. But what tends to happen sometimes, not always, but yeah. what can happen in a, in a dominant submissive relationship that is in that more 24-7 sense is it starts to become unbalanced. There is a very slippery slope and a fine line between, yes, I'm your dominant and I'm making these decisions because I have your best interest in mind and I'm very level-headed and I know exactly what I'm doing and I'm you know, totally emotionally balanced to slipping into abuse. So I agree with you. It's a very, it's, it's one reason why I don't do it. I would never tell anybody, um, obviously to engage in it or not, but do you know people that are, uh, very close to you that are in 24 seven relationships that you would say are working? I mean, look, no relationship's going to be perfect, but I've definitely seen examples, but mm-hmm. not terribly up close. I, so, I've seen examples of it working beautifully. Yeah. And I've seen examples of it being a complete disaster. Yeah, shit, shit. So, you know, just like any relationship, I've seen vanilla <laughs> relationships that are great and some that are horrible. It's the yes. same sort of thing. It's, you know, how... Um, emotionally literate are you? How well balanced are you? Do you have other issues in the relationship? Are you, let's say if you're a submissive, do you have, are you able to stand up and set boundaries even though yes, you have a submissive role? Do you have the confidence and the tools to stand up and say, no, this right here is a boundary. This is where I'm crossing the line. Do you have the ability to recognize that if you're the dominant and you're starting to slip into that? That's really difficult, you know, because theoretically. Oh, go ahead. No, you go on. No, I was going to say, theoretically, if we're doing BDSM, quote, you know, right, and we are secure enough to state what our boundaries and desires and wants and needs and all that are, and we are able to fully communicate with our partner without fear of, you know, what are they going to think? Or or am I going to get punished? You know, if you're- Or are they going to leave me? Exactly. Are they going to leave me? Um, in, in, In theory, people into BDSM are better communicators, better negotiators. They can talk about their feelings more. They are more, it's more routine to assert boundaries or have uncomfortable conversations. Again, in theory. Does it always work out that way? No. Does it sometimes? Oh, hell yeah. It just depends on the relationship. I think you have to have a black belt in communication to engage in any of this kind of fun stuff. Mm -hmm. But I also think that engaging in the fun stuff is what teaches you the black belt communication skills. Yeah. I don't think I knew anything about communicating and I definitely read books and I was aware of the, you know, the Marshall Rosenberg nonviolent communication and I had 12 step and I had all these things. Uh, When you do this, I feel this. Uh, But it wasn't until I got into BDSM that I learned what the stakes are when you're telling someone this does not work for me. Mm-hmm. Because if you're in a you know if you're in a healthy BDSM relationship, and I almost want to put inverted commas around the healthy because we don't want it to be too healthy, right? You know, I mean, it's got to be a bit sick. Mm-hmm. You know, it's got to be a bit twisted. It's got to be a bit about doming, you know, Barbie doming Ken and, and having him chained to the radiator. Like that mm-hmm. has to be in there, and that's not 
you know, quote unquote, totally healthy. But if you're going to be in a healthy BDSM relationship, meaning that you engage in your sickness in a healthy way, then you learn a lot about how to just say what you need and how important it is that the other person respects what you're saying. Absolutely. But codependent is codependent. Right. Right. And I mean, so many of us aren't able, I mean, I even struggle with, I would say Ken and I have a pretty healthy relationship and we're good communicators. I mean, we teach this stuff, right? Yeah. But again, like who really has a perfectly 100% all the time, healthy, perfect communication all the time? It's impossible. We make mistakes. Like you said, it's learn as you go. It's like you get thrown into the deep end of the pool and you either sink or swim. You get thrown onto that bicycle and you might fall down and scrape your face up. Or you might learn to ride the bike or it might be kind of, you know, questionable, teetery-tottery. Or you fall off one day, you sleep in the gutter and then you wake up and you get back on the bike. Exactly. Exactly. And I mean, we're still doing that. I mean, we might be, we might be generally better at riding the bike or swimming in the pool or whatever metaphor we're using (laughs) than the average person. But are we perfect? Absolutely not. We still, you know, we learn from our fuck ups. Like we talk about when it comes to non-monogamy, you know, people are like, what are the rules we should have if we have an open relationship? And it's like, there, there aren't rules, but honesty and respect, like you make your own rules. Oh, yeah. what do you mean I make my own rule? So, you know, for us, we found, you know, and then people go, what rules do I make? It's like, you have to decide, well, how, what if I don't know? You learn to figure out what boundaries you need to set down by tripping over them and going, oh shit. But you definitely exactly. have to develop more sophistication than just a lot to fuck more chicks. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's just not enough. Right. Yeah. And I see a lot of people, you know, going into it and I'm just like, I look at it. I'm like, there's one of those crash and burn couples. It's going to (laughs) happen. Or you always get that sense. I mean, because, you know, you are also incredibly um, intuitive where you can just spot things Mm -hmm. and you can always see, um, not that I go to clubs and um, dungeons and parties anymore, but uh, when I did, you can see from 10 miles away, oh, she's into it and he's not. Yes. Or he's into this and she is really just here because she doesn't want to lose him. She wants to please him. She thinks she's supposed to be doing it. Mm-hmm. And that's really no bueno. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that what people, and this applies to anybody in any type of relationship, whether you're kinky or you're more vanilla or whatever you classify yourself as, you are never both going to be into the same things. And that's okay. I always talk about the Venn diagram, which is that if you're into something and your partner is into something, then there's the overlapping parts in the middle of things you're both into. Right. Do you believe that over time, if you're in touch with your current state of sexual desire, then it's going to push together. The circles are going to push together and that middle area is going to get bigger and bigger because you're going to find more and more things that you're turned on by and they're going to be in the present moment in real time finding more and more things they're turned on by. Right. If you're willing to bring that to your partner, then there's growth. But I think that there's a kind of a lackadaisical quality that happens in marriage where you go, okay, well, this is how we fuck. Yes. 
and this is it. And this is what we do. And then you just get kind of trapped. And even if you're like super horny or think of yourself as like really open and adventurous and open-minded, you get trapped in this kind of cage of, okay, this is, these are the options. This is what's on the menu. Right. And even if you're watching porn that's different or reading erotica that's different, or you go to the supermarket and you're super turned on by somebody and you don't understand why, it's very difficult to make that link between your current sex life and how you could actually incorporate that. But once you make that connection, I mean, you can... The sky's the limit, really. Right, right. I mean, I, I really think that if if couples can understand that, one, we need novelty and things that are different to, re, to have a healthy sex life, and two, that sex isn't about putting, you know, tab A into slot B, and that's it, doing the same r- routine thing. It yeah. is about, it's play. It's it's tapping into that inner eight year old. It's you know read up. You know, and I'm talking to listeners, not you, because you know this stuff. <laughs> but listeners, you know, read up on the neuroscience of play and why play is important as adults, and realize that what we're doing when we have sex is play. It's sexual improv. And if you start looking at sex, not as like, I'm going to rub the thing until stuff squirts out of it and look at it as like, we're having, we're playing a fun mental game with each other that might include rubbing the thing until stuff squirts out of it. Um, It opens up the possibilities. And, you know, first time you do a role play ever in your life, you feel like you're an idiot. You're like, this is the stupidest thing ever. But if you just push through it and think like, this is sexual improv, it's a game. It's like when you were a kid and you're like, you're the cop and I'm the robber. Okay, here's the, here's the setup. We're in like a, a bank vault and you catch me. And you yeah. just like start with whatever. It's just like when you were a kid and you let it unfold and you let go of your inhibitions and you do whatever you, know, you want to come next, even if it feels silly, even if you break character and you laugh. That's yeah. where the fun really starts. Because the, when you're a kid, you don't have an attachment to it. Like you don't start the game and go, okay, if this robber doesn't react this way, when I catch him, then this game is fucking over. Right. And so that's what, if you get too tied in with like, I rub the thing and then stuff squirts out. It's like, well, what do you do if the stuff doesn't squirt out? Exactly. You have to be able to be paying attention enough and be aware of what's happening in your own body enough that you can adjust and make that, turn that into a gift. Yeah, yeah. I really think that there should be, and someone's going to steal this idea because I know I'm, I have too much stuff to do it, but how <laughs> we go to improv classes. Like I worked in corporate America for 17 years. I worked at a huge ad agency. And one of the things that they did, we're in Chicago, they would encourage uh, like the executives to take classes at Second City because learning to improv and play like that helps in every aspect of your life. And I'm like, you know, somebody really needs to make a class, an improv class for couples that's more of a sexual improv role. Like that would just be the best. Yeah, that's really a mind-blowing idea. Dude, yeah. we should do that. Yeah, just edit this out. Don't play it so no one steals our idea. We'll do it. <laughs> Among all our other ideas that we have, one of the things that we've talked about that I find super interesting, which we may as well burn right here because we still are the only ones who can write this book, mm-hmm. is how BDSM relates to parenting. Oh and God, yes. as I mentioned before, like, okay, kids, you know, they're a cock block. 
They yeah. definitely cramp your style and you have other priorities and sometimes you're tired or they're in the room, which is uh, not helpful. Um, or, you know, even besides the physical logistical parts, there's something that happens to, let's say if the partner is a female who, um, you know, let's say vaginally or physically gave birth to the baby, right? So mm-hmm. then there's just on the physiological level, all the stuff that happens to her and now her tits are sore and she doesn't want somebody else pawing at them. And then let's say her partner, uh, whoever that is, male, female, trans, whatever gender that person is, is like extra aroused by mm-hmm. this new maternal quality that they see. Look at those full boobs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, well, how are you going to negotiate that? So what you said before was so true about how the kids will magnify the problems, especially if you don't have these great communication skills that say, um, when I say not now, I don't mean not ever, for example. Right. Because that's another thing that happens, you know, when people get stuck in just not being able to reach across the bed. Mm-hmm. not being able to have sex and then just being like, okay, well, this is how it is. It's because sometimes if you say one thing to your partner and they go, oh, okay, she doesn't want that. She doesn't like that. And then she may not even remember saying that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, what you said about getting stuck, that is so much of relationship problems is just, you, you feel stuck with something, you know, you don't want to reach out. You don't want to, you know, like you said, it could have been a simple thing one and now you've stopped doing whatever that is. Mm -hmm. And if couples can just realize that a big source of our relationship problems is getting stuck and having those things that are just stopping us. Or we've all had had instances where finally we have that conversation and once somebody says, hey, are you or should I? And then you have the conversation, you're like, wow, we're, we came to an agreement. Everything's great. I can't believe that I let not bringing this up stop me for months. And then I brought it up and we had a 10-minute conversation and everything's great now. So if we just realize that, we are going to have multiple things that we trip over where we feel stuck and we routinely have to, you know, work on getting unstuck or just be able to say to our partner, hey, I'm feeling stuck about this one thing. Like I can't get past it and it's holding me back. To just be able to say that opens up the conversation and could solve it in 15 minutes. It's true. It's true. Mm -hmm. And the way that I describe it is it's almost like we paint ourselves into a corner And sometimes when you have a low conflict relationship, which is how I would describe uh, my marriage as, where we also, we never fought, we never bickered, the kids never even saw us bicker until after we separated. And then by the time there were massive problems that had Mm -hmm. developed over years and years, we had no scaffolding, we had no structure to address the problems because we weren't used to being able to talk about them. Right. Yeah, everything was always like copacetic, copacetic. Um, But that's where sometimes I think that sex can be, you know, if it is a a level where a couple is still connecting, not that I'm advocating having some like crazy fight and fuck kind of relationship, (laughs) that would be exhausting. Um, But if you can still connect on that level, it can be a great shorthand. Yeah, to know that, oh, okay, this person is still in it with me. We're still connected. Right. We're still doing this. And 
And then you can maybe talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's too much stock given in therapy and uh, self-help and what have you with this whole like, oh, date night, date night. It's like, okay, great. Date night's terrific. But like, you know, stay home and fuck and have pizza. Right. Yeah. And that's totally date night. Like, why does it have to be a thing? Why does it have to be like, you know, Applebee's 7 p.m. appetizer special? Like, why does it have to be a specific because Applebee's uh, appetizers really foster connecting emotionally. Don't you know that? <laughs> Those cheese sticks and the, the, the artichoke dip, you know. Mm. <laughs> artichoke dip. Bring some home for mommy. Right? No, but I think one thing that you, going back to one thing you said about the Venn diagram, mm-hmm. about how, you know, when we communicate better, our, our overlapping parts of the Venn diagram get bigger. Mm-hmm. I think there's also a lot to be said for don't ever expect your Venn diagrams to overlap. Those spaces that don't match up, you're still going to have spaces that don't match up. And I think a lot of couples think like, our Venn diagrams have to eventually overlap. We're going to do all this relationship work. And we're... No, there are going to be like stark differences that you're never going to agree. Like there's going to be a turn on that one partner has that's never going to be a turn on that the other one has, no matter how hard you try. And I think that we feel that we're broken if we can't fix that. And I think just recognizing that there are going to be those things. That's and so if, true. If how you approach them. Like if, if you're making those one parts of the Venn diagram that you can make overlap and you're communicating better and you're you know, relating better, you can troubleshoot ways to get your side of the Venn diagram that I don't match up with satisfied and vice versa without feeling like you failed each other because you're not going to be 100% on each other's same page all the time. That is so true. So true. My goodness, what a mouthful. Because really, truly, the other thing about that is that people assume that their sexuality has to all come from their partner. So if you have like that crescent moon or that halfway moon or whatever uh, part of the circle that you know is not going to overlap with your partner, I think the thing that people don't understand or forget is that that's still yours. Right. And you get to keep that and you get to explore that and you get to have your own private relationship with that. And a private relationship with that doesn't mean it's a secret. It right. That you're, you know, you got to go out and, you know, do shit behind their back or that you're engaging in behavior that, you know, would take down the relationship if the other person found out. But mm-hmm. the fact that even if you decide that, okay, you're not going to be polyamorous, even if you decide, okay, I'm going to, you know, give this whole monogamy thing a shot, then you still get to keep that. You still get to develop those parts of you and you can share them with your partner as something that turns you on without, again, necessarily expecting this result that, right. oh, well, we, like you said, we failed. If, if, if my partner isn't into this, then I don't get to have it. And uh, we just, you know, I got to shut that part of myself down. Right. And I think that's where we're all failing ourselves, thinking that we're failures for not being able to have that. And, yeah. and you know, and a lot of it is even you know, yes, it's us shutting ourselves down. Like, well, I guess I don't get to enjoy, you know, cross-dressing or, you know, whatever it is that you like to do. Um, But it's, it's shutting our partners down for making them feel like 
they're doing us a disservice or they don't love us enough, you know, to not want that thing anymore because we're not into it. It's like, that's not going to happen. Whether you're, whether you're monogamous, not monogamous, there are ways you can figure out to troubleshoot it and to let that person at least live out some of their fantasies in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I know that you have a lot of friends with extreme fetishes and Mm -hmm. frankly, I'm a bit jelly, (laughs) but, um, when I come to Chicago, you will invite me to those parties. Yes. 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 um, Or at least a tea, you know, a tea Mm -hmm. party. But what it would be a clothed, clothed uh, female nude male. Sienna, let's see. I always mess that up. C, C, F, and M party, oh, oh, which okay. we've had those tea parties. They're great. Oh, I'm all about that. Yeah, yeah. Just Ooh. naked men serving you. Like I'm looking at awesome. my ticket right now. <laughs> but it's about. But listen, that whole thing though, it's interesting because role play I find to be really cheesy if it doesn't have the right energy. It's like it's not so. Uh, you know, if someone turns up, I'm here to clean the pool, ma'am. It's like it's not. It's not about you know. Oh, he's wearing little shorts and he's going to pretend to clean the pool. It's about the energy. It's like the reason that that's hot to me about being the clothes the clothed female and having naked men serve you or naked women serve you or whatever you want, um, whoever you want to serve you, is that they're serving you. Right. And that's the part that's exciting. And I feel like sometimes the scenario is the clue, but the actual underneath part is the energy that you're doing it with. But most people are not looking at it that deeply because, you know, we haven't been taught to think about sex the way that we talk about you know the depth with which we talk about our cars or our television shows or things that in my mind are not nearly as important but we're just mm-hmm. not lo- used to looking at like our motives underneath for these things yeah yeah i mean i think you know i operate from a place in a lot of people in sex positive communities or people who are sex educators or therapists or in in that profession, coaches, we look at sex as more of a mental give and take where the common population, most people are looking at it as like, let's rub our genitals together. Yeah. And the whole mental aspect, the whole play aspect is something that is completely foreign to most people because we're not taught to look at sex that way at all. Yeah. And that's why people hit a wall as well, because they're not really aware of what it is about their partner that even turns them on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember I, I, I coached this girl and she was like really mm, prissy looking, um, very, very, very um, beautiful, but also very uh, Nordic looking and cool looking you know, like cool, like temperature cool uh-huh. and a very proper, um, very proper manners, et cetera. And she was really grossed out by how many women her husband had fucked. She said, she said she wanted to sage his dick, Aww. you know, like, like, uh, to, to cleanse Like it. to get all the, the, the skanky yeah. spirits out of it or something. Is that what? <laughs> no. skanking sage. So, Anyway, they just weren't connecting sexually. I only had one um, one session with her, and I was like, "How about uh, princess by day, slut by night?" Mm-hmm. I said, "Go look that up," because I I just sensed that that was where their Venn diagram 
overlapped. And that's what he found hot about her because you don't get involved. If you're a guy who's had tons and tons of experience, right. And you've been with a lot of super, you know, open sexually women or slutty women. And I use slutty, slutty, you know, completely in the positive sense. Mm -hmm. It's a term of endearment. You slut. I love you. Slutty slut. Um, (laughs) So I'm so slutty today. So, but he chose this woman to marry and make a, a commitment and babies with is that there's something about defiling her at night while she has this very prim image during the day that was likely what was appealing to him and what was appealing to her. Mm. But a lot of the time, the things that turn you on are also the things that you might be afraid of or don't want to look at. So anyway, they had a massively wild and sexy time. Nice. It unlocked a lot of stuff for them. Um, But I was going to um, ask you about 12 different things, but we cannot address everything in this one conversation. Okay. So I don't even know where to go next. I feel like we've covered. So, oh, yes, right. So how do we, see, this is raw, guys, raw, unfiltered, uncut, mm-hmm. uncircumcised, uncircumcised entertainment <laughs> right here. We are, I'm tired of fucking airbrushing. This is it. This is what you get today. So... I was going to ask you how do you, we got completely off track because I was talking about the friends of yours that have interesting fetishes. How do you think it's possible? And do you think it's possible to meet the need of any fetish in real life? Is it possible to satisfy any fetish in real life? It, yes. You know, I put some caveats there. Uh-huh. Uh, depending on how creative you want to get. So let's say I'm going to go real extreme. If your fetish is murder, you're yeah. not really going to murder people. Like yeah. that we can't do. You yeah. know, red, safe word, don't murder me. Right. Um, however. <laughs> That's the if, first caveat. Exactly. I'd like to not be murdered. Exactly. That would be my first boundary. However, I I have had friends where that is their their fantasy, like death murder kind of fantasies, mm-hmm. and they do elaborate role plays where they will um, put plastic all over the room, like a Dexter kill room, mm-hmm. and like role play like Dexter scenarios. Wow! And if that satisfies your kink, great. Mm-hmm. You know, and you may have to go to extremes. You may have to, you know, plastic an entire room and get, you know, fake, fake blood. blood. Like, you, you know, you get like chocolate sauce and corn syrup or something. Mm-hmm. Make a bucket of fake blood. Um, you might actually be in there, you know, you might be into blood play where you can do an, a, a little bit of real blood play and, you know, mix it in there to make it feel real. You have to be real creative and you have to be willing to say like, some of these things in absolute reality may not actually be possible, but I'm willing to, you know, get creative and role play them. So in that sense, yes, it's possible to live out pretty much any fantasy. And is it possible to be with a partner who does not want to engage in your fetish um, with you? And you know that I'm sure you've heard lots of stories like that. Mm-hmm. And even you had mentioned that you know somebody who has a flesh eating right fantasy so it's not always that it's some you know relatively benign thing like a foot thing or not that we judge one fetish is better than the other but certainly um 
on the scale of being more socially acceptable or right. readily understandable, uh, something like feet or even, you know, asses or, um, you know, amputees, you know, like amputees is not that hard. You just bind up one arm and away you go. Right. But let's say it's something like a flesh eating fantasy. And let's say the other person absolutely does not want to engage in that. How does that flesh eating fantasy person continue in that relationship? You know, it can be hit or miss. It could be difficult or solvable. Is it something where, you know, this fantasy, the flesh eating fantasy, it obviously requires probably another person. I mean, unless maybe you're eating your own flesh, you know, but you have to do that safely. If you're going to lob off little pieces of, you know, your inner thigh or something, um, you don't just want to like go grab a butter knife from the kitchen and you know yeah. <laughs> there's well, butter knife that would take forever well yeah that's true okay dull steak knife whatever yeah. um but it you know if it's a fantasy where you need another person involved you have to you know in that relationship you might have to say okay you can get another person re- involved in your kink maybe you you do nothing sexual maybe they're just the person somebody with medical knowledge yeah that can help you you know cut off the calluses on your big toe and fry them up or whatever it is you know uh <laughs> Or just ask for the shavings after you get your pedicure, you know, or something. Delicious. But <laughs> I love a bunion before dinner. <laughs> Bunions and onions. Oh my God. It's my new restaurant. Isn't that um, an Applebee's appetizer? Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. We sat down um, and had bunions and onions. They oh, were delicious. God. A blooming bunion. Oh, God. I could just go on. All right. So we came at the table. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it may be, you know, as simple as, yes, we're monogamous, but I will allow you to involve another person in your kink as long as you don't go into the sexual realm. So some people do this with kink. Like maybe oh. there's one partner that's kinky and one partner that isn't. And it's like, you, you're not going to go getting in a relationship with other people or fucking somebody else, but you can go to the club and get a good flogging in a non-sexual manner. You're not going to have an orgasm, but you're going to go get beaten. And to you, that feels good. You may come to that sort of understanding. Or it may be, yeah, you open up the relationship to a point where if your fetish involves something sexual, but if, if there is no give and take, these urges that we have, you know, and I can speak from experience. I think a lot of us who have fantasies or urges can't, they don't go away. They do not go away. They don't die. Mm -mm. They fester, you know, whether it's a fantasy that you can actually do or something where you have to role play, it's, it just kind of, it eats you up and gets bottled up and wants to come out. And makes you annoyed. Exactly, exactly. So if you're with a partner... Here are my bunions. Exactly. Fix them immediately. (laughs) But if you're with a partner that isn't willing to have any give and take or do any sort of creative troubleshooting with you, then maybe that's not the relationship for you. I think those are very wise words to end on because people need to understand and... uh, you know, as much as we're like whatever quote unquote experts, I think that there's always a layer that's you're always learning mm-hmm. is that you understand what things are non-negotiable for you and what things are 
such important needs that as, as great as your connection is with somebody, if you're not able to connect on this very fundamental level, then you're kind of cheating both of you. Right. Yeah. And we, we have been taught by our society, you know, till death do us part, nothing will ever break. I will never leave you. This is forever. We have a real failure to be able to say like, hey, this isn't working and I'm going to end the relationship and it's okay. It's actually a positive for both yeah, of us. Yeah, and this was a successful relationship. We, it was a successful relationship as five years or six years or six months or mm-hmm. 20 years as opposed to, you know, like you spend 20 years with someone and then, oh, it's a failed marriage. It's like, no, it's a successful 20-year relationship and you don't always grow in the same direction. Exactly. Exactly. We're, we're so like guilted into obligation. That's just the way we operate in our society. And we don't, you know what I mean? It's like, we're not obligated to be, you know, Oh, we've been together for five years. Oh, we, we have a car and a condo together and a dog. Like who cares? You know, do what you got to do to be happy. It's true. It's true. I'm going to get that stitched into a pillow. (laughs) your house when we have naked men serving us yeah blooming onions yes i I pass on the bunions not my kink i mean it's a great kink not mine though totally we're not kink shaming here Mm -hmm. that's why i said onions because i figured that the bunion thing we wouldn't bond over that no but But, you know what i would do though you know what i would do (laughs) we would get served the onions like a really good appetizer Mm -hmm. and then maybe as a reward, our naked manservants will feed them the bunions. That can be their treat. They can eat that. <laughs> Spoken like a true sadist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my God, I adore you. Okay, so this has been the most wonderfully antisocial conversation. And if I aim for anything with this podcast is for you all out there to get antisocial not in the sense that you go out and harm people, but in the sense that you do the things that make you feel happy so that you don't feel like harming people in a real way, not harming people that don't want to be consensually harmed. And I want to thank you so much, Sunny Megatron, for everything, the least of which um, is uh, in some ways having this conversation with me because you've just been such an incredible mentor and sounding board and cheerleader um to me so i owe you a great deal and i just have to say while we're having a love fest i mean it it goes back the same way like working on editing your book really helped me tap into my intuition i think i've always had it but i've always denied it yeah so it made me really go like wait a minute listen to that little voice don't you know brush it off thinking oh you're just being because god damn i'm spot on most of the time yeah you are yeah, you are. You found your witch superpower. I totally did. Yeah. But it's all, all right. science. It's all science. It is. It is. <laughs> Read the book to find out. 